In this episode, we're going to talk to our beloved co-host, Babak, about the development of community, blending professional and radical work, and the care and intentionality needed to create new forms of life within a revolutionary struggle. Welcome to the Health Autonomy at End of Empire podcast on Mask FM, a semi-monthly investigation into the struggle to create health autonomy and the revolutionary care to build a new world. If you're interested in supporting our network with a monthly donation, please visit patreon.com slash maskfm. Hey everyone, welcome back to Health Autonomy at the End of Empire. Welcome to episode two. I'm your host, Frank, and in this episode, we're going to continue our investigation into health autonomy and the path towards the struggle with one of our hosts. We'll be talking about coming up through different struggles internationally, the role of culture in shaping actions, and the way that struggle melds with professional work. All right, so in this second episode, we're going to be talking with Babak, our beloved co-host. He's a doctor at one of the public hospitals in New York City, working in addiction treatment. He's been involved in a variety of organizations throughout his time in New York City and is one of the members of the Woodbine Health Autonomy Group. So welcome. Thanks, Frank. How's it going? Good, good. All right. You feeling good? A little good. nervous. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, just, uh, uh, just to, to kind of some, some context about what's going on today. You know, today we're, we're uh, recording this and uh, on the news is all the stuff about Hurricane Harvey and obviously our, our thoughts go out to all the people who are suffering and... and um, uh, working with through this horrific storm, um, but you know, as we talk about health autonomy and and the the failure of structures and institutions, I think it's a, an interesting context uh, of which to to be thinking about. So anyway, Babak, it's a pleasure to have you on. Welcome. Thank you, Frank. All right. So um, there are a couple of things I, I really want to talk about, and uh, you know, we're we're good friends. We've been friends for a while, and uh, I've always kind of admired how you think about things. Uh, and, and what the energy you bring. But um, I know one of the things that's really important for you is your family and, and kind of your cultural background. And so maybe tell us a little bit about your family uh, coming from Iran. You know, what was it like growing up for you? Um, and how do you feel like that has influenced, um, you know, you now, the, the, the person sitting in front of me? Yeah, definitely. We, we came out uh, right after the Islamic Revolution and there was a war going on between Iran and Iraq, which cost about a million lives. And at the same time, the government in Iran was going after the left and about roughly a hundred thousand people were either executed or missing. And so, uh, we, we got out and we came to the U S and at the same time, the U S was reeling from the whole Tehran hostage crisis. And I remember in the fourth grade when Bush Sr. invaded Iraq, our school literary magazine went from haikus and drawings to pictures of F-16s bombing the shit out of Iraq, one of the oldest civilizations in the world. And the teachers and the administration really didn't confront that. And neither did they confront the kids that started calling me terrorist and all these other racial slangs, towelhead, etc. And it became kind of clear that I'm brown and they're white and getting into a fight with every shithead dropping a racial slur <laughs> wasn't going to help. So if I wasn't allowed to assimilate education at school and at home, uh, and also our community was a way out of feeling inferior. So we're 
kind of strange times again is people from the Middle East. And it's important to stress that we weren't the stereotypical Muslim traditional family as well that, that antagonized anything Western or American. Far from it. Uh, we were a community and it was a community that was sustained by my parents, their friends, our extended family, lots of parties, lots of dinners, poetry nights, late night discussions on, on politics, film, what have you. And on issues that were related to the Middle East, but also about Latin America and what was happening in Africa. And we were also heavily influenced by, I guess, what you would call a people's history of the U.S. We had a lot of American friends as well and extended family. So it was beautiful in seeing how our community was able to recuperate collectively while also rupturing from some of the ethnocentricity that immigrants get labeled with. Um, we weren't the stereotypical immigrant family. We're not even Muslim. Um, and again, we see the reproduction of these narratives now. So in other words, I think that building community was a way of getting out of victim identity and being part of a more expansive community uh, beyond you know just the Iranians. That's cool. And, and was the idea of community, was that something that your parents really uh, explicitly pushed forward or was it more just an implicit, this is like how we experience the world is through other people? Yeah. I mean, it was a way of really recuperating. You, you didn't have yoga back then or you didn't have a lot of other resources that let's say people take on individually. So being culturally peripheral, economically marginalized, uh, community was just something natural. It was just something that you turned to. It's what you did your whole life and it's something that you go back to now. And it was something that allowed, allowed us to bounce back emotionally, but also still be involved with politics, uh, but in a way that was sustainable so you can eat and care for one another. And after we've recuperated from whatever BS we had to deal with at work or at school, uh, then we can get engaged with politics. Uh, and continue that discussion. So it was it was a really rich and and sort of nourishing environment to be part of, and I think that was something that that's been embedded. So to just go to a meeting where it feels just like work, where you go in, uh, you have an agenda, you get it done, and you leave without having any sort of deeper emotional connection with the people there or or the people around you was something that. I think I, I thought was normal and I had to assimilate to in activist culture. Um, but it was always something that I, I, I found a little, uh, alienating sometimes. So, oh, that's interesting. And then, yeah. And then you kind of got really involved in, in like anti-globalization struggles, um, you know, coming out of the nineties, obviously with Seattle, uh, and then the, the Palestinian solidarity work and some other solidarity work around the world. Like how did that, um, how did you get involved in that? Was that something that, uh, your parents were involved in or your, the larger community was involved in, or, or did you find that on your own? And, and what were those experiences like for you? Yeah, that, that was going on during high school and, and sort of beyond the media obsession around the riot police and tear gas, there was definitely a community that was really inclusive of a lot of global struggles from Chiapas to South Korea. Uh, and, and they were confronting the exploitation of farmers, uh, talking about women's rights, uh, migration, uh, LGBT rights. And they were also at the same time talking about and confronting these issues, uh, but also reproducing a lot of the DIY work from, from the punk era, but in a different form. Um, so, so you had food, not bombs, you had teach-ins, mutual aid, medical support, zines, uh, and even online platforms like in the media and rise up that, that emerged, 
uh, around some of the summit protests. So it wasn't just about the protests, but it was about creating all the means that could sustain the community around the protests and in between, uh, in the interval between each of the protests. So it was, it was interesting in seeing how the, the whole global anti-capitalist network without any sort of central direction was able to confront capital, but at the same time, create the platforms and the infrastructures that will allow us to live autonomously. So, um, so that, that had a big impact. And, and also, uh, in parallel to that, there was the Palestine solidarity work going on in the U S that was incredibly cognizant about facets of our daily lives that were contributing to the occupation of Palestine. So, uh, the, the emphasis on divestment, for instance, as a means of solidarity was, was incredible because instead of just protesting in front of the Israeli embassy, we could confront our universities where we worked, uh, and, and look at all of their investments and how our tuition money and our labor and all of our work was actually part of a broader profit model, um, profiting off of the genocide going on in Palestine. And the other thing is, is someone from the Middle East, um, the, the other issue that, uh, Palestine solidarity work highlighted was, um, bringing back and reawakening decolonization and what the role of race meant as part of our contribution to autonomous politics. So, so that was definitely important. Um, but as a side note, the anti-war movement really pushed aside a lot of these conversations, at least in the DC context. And I don't want to bash the entire anti-war movement, um, but at least in the networks, uh, I was more, uh, involved with, um, the anti-war movement, uh, took what was, I think a very rich anti-capitalist, uh, diverse, inclusive movement and sort of funneled it into a more liberal white singular kind of conversation mm. just around the war um, and removed it from, from the broader context. And I think that was a time that I had to jump out yeah. and, and take a break and go to school yeah. again. So do you think that had something to do with like nine 11 or just changes in, in politics? Or do you think it was a success of say like oppositional forces to, to, to take maybe whatever the power was behind that anti-globalization movements uh, and, and kind of gut it to make it about the war itself. Yeah, definitely. 9-11 really amped up police tactics. It really amped up surveillance. But at the same time, uh, it wasn't just Bush and that administration. I feel like within the quote-unquote left, uh, anarchists and the autonomous movement really took a hit from uh, from some of the anti-war leadership that I think represented a very liberal singular analysis around uh, what war was as if as though, you know, Iraq wasn't being destroyed during the Clinton era. And after a hundred years of colonialism, um, the, the conversations were incredibly suffocating. There was no inclusivity. I mean, it's just what, what you experience in these groups after the anti-globalization movement is just the way the groups are, mm. uh, without even having to get into a conversation with them. You know, there's always a central core leadership, no transparency, no horizontal and and even as a person from that region uh i remember being told once when we were bringing up the issue of palestine uh from a group of anti-war organizers that from campus organizers that oh you guys are trying to jump on the bandwagon <laughs> and and that's when i realized oh shit yeah. you know you like you go to a meeting and people can get away with that kind of with that kind of narrative around what's happening and and so 
I think in a moment like that, I, I felt a little isolated. Um, and I think as a whole, the anti-globalization movement was, was trying to find this bearings. So yeah. So I, I got out yeah. <laughs> for a little bit. That's, yeah, that's so interesting. And so you got out. So then, uh, so then you find yourself on the path towards becoming a doctor. So it, it kind of walk us through, what was that process for you? You know, how, how did you go from, from this kind of upbringing towards like thinking about becoming a doctor and, uh, and what that process was for you? Yeah, I had, I really didn't have any mentors. Uh, no one in our family was a, was a doctor, but definitely the stories from Chase, Stephen Biko, Allende, they were incredibly inspiring, but also seeing our friends and our family and, and how they provided so much emotional and material support for others was also, uh, a major point of inspiration, but, but how could we provide that level of solidarity, that level of emotional material support, uh, while also being independent and, and, and not having to, to necessarily preach or organize someone when you do provide support. So I thought that something more technical like medicine was a way out. That was a way where you could just give help, um, and, and from those exchanges develop a sort of analysis that, that brought about Che and Steve and Stephen Biko at that time. Um, so that's how I got into it. Yeah. That's cool. And, and what was the path like for you? Did you have kind of a traditional, you know, you go through like meds, you know, go to college, you go to med school, blah, blah, blah or like, you know. Yeah, it was pretty much like that. I mean, ever since middle school, high school, uh, I wanted to go to med school. I didn't do well in my science classes. So if there's people there who (laughs) are being told uh, to turn away by their pre-med advisors and their science professors, it's all bullshit. Um, I didn't do that well, to be honest. My GPA wasn't that hot for science, and I didn't do that well in MCATs. But... Uh, but I knew that there was something more to medicine than just mastering some organic chemistry formula, that it, it wasn't that simple. And, and so, I, and, and the, and the more they told me not to do it, the more I became stubborn and, and maybe I would have switched degrees. I don't know, but I was told so much by, by our administration that I shouldn't do it, shouldn't do it, that I decided to do it. Um, even with an element of just confronting that. So, so yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I always think it's important to, to, to highlight like non-traditional like ways of going through things or, um, you know, yeah, you know, everyone has like a, a mark on their application, you know, like I tried for many years to get into med school and and whatnot. And and I always think it's cool because then I like see some of the students that come up that are just like brilliant, like really smart, don't know shit about shit. Like they don't know anything about like how to talk to people. They don't know anything about like you know, how to like interact with people who maybe don't come from the same like neighborhood and, yeah. uh, or even just how to treat people like, like human beings, you know, exactly. like the, the nurses and the techs and like other doctors, you know? And yeah. So anyway, if you're listening and you're studying, go outside, enjoy the sun, go to the beach. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, there was a moment, um, I was involved in a project where I, where I had a chance to, to work with Cuban doctors and it was so interesting to meet doctors coming from, backgrounds that uh you know they they were farmers or they were uh workers before and and because of the system in cuba they were allowed to go to med school and and they were brilliant doctors they were great they were doing great work uh, but they didn't come from that sort of aristocracy of who's allowed 
to be a doctor and who's not. And, and, and it was just a different attitude and you could tell that the desire to care was what got them there. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, who, who, who got the best scores, who got the best, uh, whose, whose parents were doctors, uh, it, none of that. It was yeah. really like that desire of care, which made them into good doctors. Um, so I think that that's important for people who are listening, who decide to go to social work or nursing or any other field in healthcare. Um, there's the institutional sort of filters, but that's bullshit. And, yeah. and they really shouldn't let, uh, exams or how long your resume is to, to filter people out. Yeah. I always think bartending was like the best training I ever had. For, yeah, for exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, speaking of that, like how, how did you relate to other people in your classes and like, you know, in within residency and, and whatnot? Yeah, I, I really, I, it was difficult assimilating. Um, I, I didn't, I, I only had two friends in pre-med who I'm still friends with now. Uh, I, 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 I didn't get along really with, with, I mean, I got along, but I really didn't have close friendships with people in pre-med, med school and residency. Uh, I admired definitely doctors and, and co-students who were technically gifted. Uh, and, and, and I really sort of strive to, to master the craft, but, uh, emotionally or politically or culturally, I, I, I just didn't connect with them. So it was always, crucial to have sort of that backup, that backup beyond the institution where I had family and friends who, who I really cared for and who cared for me. And, and I could, I could sort of maintain my identity without assimilating into a professional identity. Uh, so friends, uh, especially those who were involved in some of the political spaces that we'll talk about later were crucial in getting me through. Uh, so I could go to school uh, go to work and still at night have a group to go back to. Um, and that was, that was critical. Yeah, no, absolutely. And speaking of, uh, of community, I mean, you were in uh, New York city during occupy and I know we've talked about this a lot, but, uh, you know, I'd love to hear uh, kind of what, what your experiences were, you know, going through, uh, you were in residency, I believe. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and what that was like going, you know, occupy happening in, in New York city and, and uh, what that represented to you, maybe personally, but and also professionally, like how you started to think about your role as as uh, you know coming to the end of your training. Yeah, I mean, first, just coming to New York was a way out. It was a way out of the medical fold. So if I was stuck in some suburban hospital or some suburban training program, uh, I I wouldn't really have a community to go to. So I knew at least in New York uh, there were there were alternative spaces to get involved with. So, uh, there were the radical bookstores, radical, uh, spaces that you could get into book reading groups and, and find your community. Uh, but then, you know, towards, towards the end of residency, I was getting a little disillusioned from New York and I hate, I hate to admit this, but sort of thinking that, Oh my God, nothing's happening here. <laughs> Everything is happening. Tahrir and Sintagma and Quince M in Spain and, 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 you know, what's happening here. And I remember there was a thread in indie media saying, you know, meeting in Tompkins square park. Uh, and then from that there was September 19th for, for the March, um, which ended up, uh, turning into occupy and, and it completely negated that narrative that nothing happens in the U S and, and I think a lot of us fall in that trap where we expect a spectacle to happen, uh, every week or every month, uh, you know, just to keep our attention going. But what occupy did was it brought a lot of people that were actually involved in a lot of things in the city, 
but who, who couldn't really find a home in some of those radical spaces that we had in New York, uh, but could be present and could collectivize in, in, in Zuccotti. And, and so it was, it was great because it was, it was also a space where we could move out of the, the traditional activist frameworks that you had to be, uh, you know, a strict, uh, member, member of the socialist workers party, or you had to look like, or talk like a certain collective in order to fit in and, and people could just find each other based on needs and, and mutual interest. So there's a lot to say, I think negative, like there's, there's definitely criticisms, uh, but also a lot of positive things to say about Occupy. But I think really what the, the key thing for Occupy for me was it propelled us to a different level of thinking about autonomous politics, to think beyond sort of the summit protests, to think about uh, some beyond uh, just one or two fixed solidarity actions for, let's say, Palestine, for instance, um, but to look at how we can politicize everyday life. And, and, and where we live, where we work, eat, or how we care for one another, uh, these are all zero points. These are all points that we could gather, collectivize, and start. And I think that's why Occupy Sandy, for instance, um, in the wake of right now, you know, the hurricane that hit Houston, I think is, is a testament to that, to, to its validity, that it was able to to allow people to move beyond, let's say, an electoral framework or a central committee or hierarchical framework and for people to see needs and to provide mutual aid and, and articulate that desire. So so that I think that that's what was key about it. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And even that point of like, uh, that feeling of like, oh, nothing ever happens. Or I was just listening to this thing with uh, Chani Mieville, who just wrote this October book about the the revolution uh in russia you know the the hundred years ago yeah and uh saying like even two weeks before the fall of the the monarchy like hardcore activists are like god nothing is happening this is like so boring right now and two weeks later you have this like complete upheaval of the dynasty essentially and yeah i feel like new york city is actually really good about always holding that potential you look like black lives matter like you know that just came out it seemed like nowhere uh, and uh, and was just so like revitalizing for so many people and and whatnot but even that point too i think you know i struggle with this all the time when people are, are like oh like i moved to new york because like occupy and like oh occupy like that failed though right you know it's like such a stupid way of thinking about things of like that you know uh, the, the even woodbine and like i feel like so many of the things that we are involved in are are um like the reproduction of occupy like that it pushed us into a new realm of like thinking about things and uh and so yeah i don't know how you can think about things in this like binary of like succeed failure you know good bad whatnot it's like a general progression and um you know something i've been thinking about with this idea of culture like you know how how the the way your community was able to reproduce a certain aesthetic or a certain way of being in the world and then you like push that forward and it's something right. I think about with us, you know, how do we take the things that, that have happened in the past, we push it forward and then hopefully the next generation pushes, you know, they're like, oh, those like, they didn't know what they were doing right, and we're, exactly. we're going to do it better. And, uh, you know, I hope they do. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Uh, and then after, you know, during Occupy and after Occupy, you were involved with, uh, what seems like a lot of groups, <laughs> um, but, uh, two of the ones that I, that I met you through were 16 Beaver and, uh, and Florence Johnson collective. And, uh, I was hoping you could describe some of the experiences with, with working with them, you know, what, what they were about and kind of what their goals were, uh, and how those have influenced you. Yeah. I think before Occupy, uh, I wouldn't have found those groups, but I think post Occupy, there was, 
there was a level of, of motivation to, to get involved in more practical forms of everyday life, let's say around food or healthcare. Uh, and, and also while, you know, almost pedagogically being involved in something practical while also sort of grasping the theoretical behind it and, and how theory can offer new alternatives, um, to how we live. So, uh, to begin with, I think 16 Beaver was, was probably the most influential, definitely is the most influential space, uh, I was involved with and I'm involved with it. It, it, it was an artist initiated space, uh, which shares a variety of artistic, cultural, political projects and tries to link discussions to new courses of actions. Um, but as some of the listeners can check on 16 beaver group.org, uh, <laughs> the group offered to those of us committed to autonomous politics, a level of conversation and engagement with concepts that we that we really weren't exposed to before they were siloed in academia and groups for instance like no tav in italy up against the wall motherfuckers uh the pa group in spain david harvey sylvia federici graber um and concepts around social reproduction and commoning were 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 things that we could discuss right there with those authors uh while also having the chance the following week to talk with a group that was actually doing something concretely, whether it was here in the U S or globally. Um, so, so that, that group had a major impact and, um, it, and, and even, even, even how the group conducted itself was different than the traditional activist groups. We cooked together, we ate together, we discussed issues together. Um, we, we, we didn't really follow more regimented, activist mores around hierarchy and agenda. And, and it was really based on, on, on a collective investigation. So it was incredible. Um, and around the same time, also Florence Johnson, uh, was involved in, in a lot of work and, and, and exposing, um, conversations around care work, but also around those workers within the medical industrial complex, um, who even who, you know, who are being exploited to provide us with quote unquote healthcare. So it really exposes contradictions like worker exploitation or hospital closures and gentrification up against, uh, sort of the narrative that healthcare institutions provide care. Um, and, and they were able to, to also discuss the alternatives to this. In addition to being antagonistic to those tendencies around social reproduction and care work. And I think they were heavily inspired by Silvia Federici as was, was I. Um, and, and I think that they really brought the idea of care work and care reproduction into a real, uh, tangible conversation, um, in New York and, and, and that had a huge influence on me. Um, so I think through both of these groups, I, I finally found out that, okay, fine. Well, my clinical work, you know, after being sort of dismayed through pre-med and med school and residency that, oh my God, there's no possibility of doing anything progressive even within the institution of, of, of medicine. Um, but then these two groups, 16 Beaver and Florence Johnson really flipped that. And I was able to see that, you know, my labor and the institution and, and the place I work at was actually a platform that could contribute to autonomous politics. So I could deinstitutionalize, you know, the power dynamics and, and, and the hyper capitalization of, of health. Um, I could challenge that and, and try to see how we, you know, as coworkers and as people who come there, um, with health needs, um, 
can collectivize and, and, and liberate space within the hospital and liberate knowledges and techniques and strategies of, around care. Uh, so, so it was great. It was great. And, and for the first time I didn't feel like I was stuck in this dichotomy where, you know, I'm a weekend activist warrior and then I got to go to my shitty job on Monday. Actually, uh, there's a lot of beautiful things to embrace where we work among our coworkers, uh, that can, you know, lead to new possibilities around autonomous politics. Cool. And, and the work you do now, um, works a lot around addiction medicine and, and, um, and detox and, and I think in the, the kind of U S news and, and people are talking a lot about like the opiate crisis and, and whatnot. And, you know, how do you see like, you know, your, your thoughts about health autonomy, your thoughts about uh, radical politics, um, in, in what, what is now, you know, this like epidemic that is, that is kind of ru- rushing through, through the U S, um, around opiate medicines, pain medications, things like that. Like how, how does that conversation happen or, or yeah. what are your experiences around that? So it was interesting getting into addiction because it was it was a field that was was really off the radar. I mean, people go into cardiology or surgery or something really you know spectacular. Uh, and then when I decided to get into addiction, my I had some issues with my with my residency program because of occupying other stuff. <laughs> um, and 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 the way that they tried to to get back at me was to say, "Oh, well, you're going into addiction treatment. Does that mean that you have addiction problems?" And they want to start urine uh, <laughs> doing urine dipsticks uh, to check me for drugs. But it anyway, but, but the point of getting into addiction treatment was because it's just a symptom of a broader crisis. Addiction itself is not the crisis. It's part of a broader crisis. I had family and friends who, who went through substance use problems and, and the lack of support and care institutionally, I, I thought was, was really shocking and reflective of what is a disease and what isn't a disease. Um, so I got into it because I, I could be exposed to a lot more structural issues that, you know, you don't really find in, in other areas in, in modern medicine. Uh, but to your question about the opioid crisis, this was something that has been going on. It's a crisis now because it's affecting white people, uh, but it's been going on for the last 40 years. So after uh, black urban spaces have been gutted out, deindustrialized, brutalized, uh, that wasn't a crisis. Uh, but now that it's affecting white, rural, suburban uh, demographics, now it's a crisis. Um, but it's it's not to discount what's happening at all. I mean, but, but the point is, is that it was always a crisis and it was a crisis linked to deindustrialization and the lack of public health care, uh, and education, housing, all of that. So, uh, us is the only country now whose mortality rate is going up out of the industrialized world. And the very people who are, who are unfortunately part of that, um, increasing rate of mortality is the Trump constituency. So when you compare this recent article in the proceedings national in, in the proceedings of the national Academy of sciences to, uh, the Pew survey of the Trump voter, they're identical white, less than high school, uh, unemployed or underemployed, uh, they're dying. And, and so rather than sort of trashing, uh, or, or, or rejecting that population as just a bunch of dumb Trump voters, I think it's the opposite. A lot of these folks 
were union workers. They were, they were fighting for um, keeping their factories. They were fighting to keeping their farms. And, and the real enemy is mono-agriculture and, and neoliberalism. And, and so I think that uh, on, on the one hand, you know, Trump obviously isn't doing shit for, for the opioid crisis. He puts Kushner to run it. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, though, before, uh, under Obama and, and, and sort of the Democratic Party, the Affordable Care Act did help to increase some level of access. Um, but overall, when you have Clinton calling that segment of the population deplorable, or when you have Bill Gates and, and others, especially around that Silicon Valley niche calling, um, for the survival of the fittest that, well, if these coal miners don't learn how to soft, you know, how to do programming, then, then that's it for them. (laughs) So I think that there's a major contradiction in how the right and the left in the U S is taking this on. And I think that our sort of domain, I think our analysis, offers a really uh, important contribution to this. I think in, in many ways, how we, how we confronted Occupy Sandy, like how Occupy Sandy um, dealt with the total neglect of the outer lying areas in New York that were destroyed by the hurricane, I think we should be taking on that same level of mutual aid and solidarity um, to deal with the opioid crisis. Yeah, I think it's so interesting in the sense that... Uh, uh, it seems to be in the news all the time. It's like with Hurricane Harvey and uh, that everyone is talking about it, but nobody's talking about it. Right. You know, like climate, climate change, climate right. chaos, climate justice. None of these words are used. This, uh, you know, the liberals always talking about Trump, 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 Russia, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, but never the actual problem that, right. you know, the opiate epidemic is a symptom, you know, obviously of, of new medications and, and access to medications, but also of, of, you know, in my opinion, like a failure to have a future, like a failure to, to, to see like why bother. Right. And, and, uh, yeah, I think there's like interesting articles around communities in West Virginia where like the hotbed is of, of, uh, yeah, there's just like no, people have no purpose and like purpose is such an important part of like what it means to be human. Exactly. Um, so yeah, Yeah, I mean, West Virginia is a perfect example. The number one opioid overdose state in the United States uh, but at the same time, I think lessons that we can get from Greece or Argentina uh, and other countries can can help sort of show that, well, we can do autonomous forms of farming, uh, social kitchens, care work. And, and so that, that's where I think we have we have a role in, in sort of connecting the dots. Yeah. But again, there's this huge, I think, demographic gap between us here in New York city or in other yeah. sort of radical spaces and sort of that, um, what we would call the quote unquote Trump electorate, you know, the Bible belt. Yeah. Um, and, and there's these, I think in many ways, bullshit narratives that get in the way of doing mutual aid and solidarity. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, cool. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick little break, have a little music interlude, uh, and then we're going to kind of move on from uh, from the past to maybe kind of uh, different visionary and, and uh, more international experiences. So we'll be right back.
All right, welcome back to Health, Health Autonomy at the End of Empire, episode two. Um, so we're talking with Babak here. We've been talking just a lot about like the kind of process of, of coming to a radical politics around health and healthcare um, and thinking through the material lines of autonomy. Um, and both of us have been really lucky. We've been able to travel a bunch to, to, for you know, different comrades, collectives, uh, different experiences around the, around the world. Um, and I know hearing some of your stories around your travels have been very influential for me. I know you spent a lot of time in Argentina and have comrades there, have learned tons there from the collectives. Um, you know, can you give uh, as much as you can, a, just a brief history of what happened in Argentina um, and, uh, and what you learned there? You know, what, what was inspiring for you and, and what have you been trying to bring back to your work and your thoughts here in the U.S.? Yeah, I think I had a chance to travel a lot during during college and, and med school. But what what was stuck in my head about Argentina was was you know the crisis in two thousand two, and and how Argentina was able to respond not only to that neoliberal shock in in two, but also about their past around the desaparecidos, uh, and confronting you know the military junta and many of their lower level subordinates that were carrying out actually the the machinery of of um, of killing off the left and and so there there were a lot of things that that I thought as, as an Iranian that that I was inspired by by um, what what was happening in Argentina so when I when I did finally get a chance to go I think I was in residency or after residency and it was definitely i mean way after 2002 um and and it was interesting to go to the country after sort of the left uh took was wasn't really looking at argentina anymore it wasn't in the spotlight and i think we have this tendency to to go to the next radical spotlight and 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 really just get into it and and not see how those groups sustain themselves a few years out. So I, I went to Argentina in a moment when this was just a few years ago, when some of the groups did break apart and, and were sort of reintegrated within capitalist life in, in Argentina. But yet there were, there were still other groups that were able to maintain their autonomous collectives and their autonomous forms that they were, they were able to create, uh, in a moment when there was literally no money uh, you had 6 million people involved in a bartering network. Uh, and so from those projects, you have websites, for instance, like BioEcon, uh, and so many other local forms of bartering or uh, free healthcare, free education, um, squatting. So a lot of those groups did survive. And, and I think that it's really interesting to go to, let's say, Greece or Argentina now and to see how those groups were able to recuperate not only immediately after the shock, but a decade out. So I think that that's where um, Argentina is, is, is incredible and in that you know, there's a lot of lessons to learn for us here. I think that, for instance, like Baltimore or Detroit, uh, have or, or Newark have a lot more to to learn, let's say from Puerto Rico or struggles in Argentina than we do, let's say to 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 Rojava. And it's not to discount Rojava, but I think that within the neoliberal context, um, there's a lot there's a lot to to get from Argentina and a lot to exchange with um, because a lot of the groups are very inclusive and open to exchanging with other cities. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that we talked about after, uh, I mean, you've been to, to Greece and Italy as well. And, yeah. and one of the things of, you know, especially for us here in the New York City context of, of 
looking at the struggles that have been very sensational, you know, especially in uh, 2008, 2015, um, by many accounts of us here on the left, like have had a lot of successes and yet to hear them afterwards, like after all the newspapers leave and all like the, the anarchist, uh, people leave it, it, it there, the conversations are still going on and they're still trying to push their struggle forward. And, um, you know, and, and in Greece and Italy, you the things that you have mentioned there, especially around autonomy and, and what autonomy could actually look like uh, for us here in the city. You know, I, I would just be curious to hear what your reasons or how you view the reasons to go see them. Like, why is it important for you to go and and see the way that these other collectives and um, and whatnot are doing it? Because I feel like sometimes when I talk about, oh, like I went to Greece um, you know, the immediate response is like, Oh, cool. Like what beaches did you go to? Like what islands? And I feel like that, you know, the two of us and, and among many other people who are, who are on this similar autonomous kind of idea, we have a different focus on travel. Um, and I'd be curious to hear what you, what you have to say about that. Yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, going to Greece and going to the islands and going to the beach is amazing. Um, but also, being able to do that with comrades and being able to exchange something and not just being what, you know, one of our friends called, you know, anarcho tourism. Uh, so I, what, what drew me to, to Argentina and, and Greece and Italy, it's just a different way of life. I mean, it's not about activism. It's a desire to liberate another form of life and to do, to squat or, or to, to work or, you know, to squat a farm, to squat a building or to have a cooperative, you don't, there, there's definitely a level of theory and, 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 and it's thought out. Uh, and it, it's not just done at random, but really what's driving that is, is a desire for life. And, and so to care for one another, to, to have a social kitchen, to shut down a street and have a huge dinner, invite all the neighbors, that, that was something that was incredibly inspiring about all of these countries. Um, so how, how they deal with, with food, housing, childcare, uh, they were able to do it with a certain suave. I mean, it was, it was a certain, it was just normal and 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 it was really it was really nice to see that it was really nice to see that these basic functions around commoning uh are done at a very innate level natural so i really and this is a this is really like a leap but i i don't know if it's because we're we're you know there's a major sort of anglo-saxon influence in the northeast uh, and I don't want to judge the entire United States, but I think it would be nice if we we had a chance to visit some of these spaces and just did things naturally. Um, and, and, and politics didn't have to be so regimented. So if we do food or if we do child care, uh, it's, it's something that we do out of need rather than sort of a broader, uh, very regimented sort of project um so to get into greece and italy it was it was nice to see anyway that that they weren't sort of bureaucratizing uh all of these elements of everyday life and they were able to do it beyond sort of the the mores and values of capital and the state and even some of the more traditional activist groups that some of these autonomous and anarchist spaces shied away from um so one of the things that, especially around healthcare, that was really inspiring in Greece was how clinics 
uh, or social clinics or social spaces for health or social kitchens. And these words are important, especially when you, when you're in Greece, you have to be careful, um, because each of the words are connected to sort of a form, um, in how the spaces operate, but how these groups were able to operate, how they were able to organize in tandem with a broader anti-capitalist struggle. So I'm not, fixated in singularly, you know, only concentrating on, let's say doing herbal therapy, but how is this herbal therapy part of sustaining and recuperating our neighborhood, our community and a broader anti-capitalist struggle. And I think exarchia should in, in Athens, for instance, at least from my opinion, shouldn't be seen as just, you know, this, this anarchist, uh, tourist spot, not tourist. I don't want to use that word. It, it just shouldn't be a spot where you go visit and pay homage to and, 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 and look at, you know, superficially, but to really see how it forms. Uh, and also, for example, in, 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 in Rome, in San Lorenzo, these neighborhoods are neighborhoods that people care for the art that takes place in that neighborhood, the, the mural art, um, the, the social kitchens, the farmers cooperatives, the open dinners, uh, all of these things have to do with multiple networks overlapping with one another for that moment in one geographic space to create an autonomous way of life. And, and, and so you have groups that fight the police to keep them out. Uh, and, and so you de-police the neighborhoods, but it's not just about confronting the police. It's about how we deal with food, housing, art, and all these other things that we have to have in our everyday life. So, so that's why I think it's important to, to see how, uh, Greece, Italy, or, and these are just the countries that I've been to, and I can't speak for the other, for other movements globally, but it's nice to see how, how multiple networks are able to overlap in one space and liberate a new form of life. That's cool. Yeah, thank you for that. And 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 I think this leads kind of really into, um, you know, what I love about hanging out with you is is this idea of like development of community, like the Zapatistas we talked about uh, a couple episodes ago. But this like idea of the the buen vivir, this idea of the good life, exactly. you know, what that could be. Uh, and I know for me, this is like something that I really struggle with, and I've been told by many people I'm like a little too serious, you know. Yeah. And and I think that 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 is, uh, you know, maybe it's like a, a like a. a, a a male thing maybe it's like a, a type a personality type thing i think it's definitely part of a new york city kind of milieu or the way you kind of do things um but especially like in the western kind of way we think about politics that politics is serious you know we have to go to meetings and like be efficient and blah blah, blah. And, and even last night we were in in our our collective you know we had this like crazy three and a half hour long meeting around protocols like right. super fucking boring uh, but also vital, you know, it's like so important, like how you structure, how you do things that can, that lead to horizontality, but that at the same time, the informal dinner, like the coffee with a friend, the hug when a hug is needed, like listening to people, like also how important that is. And I, I think one of the things that I um, really love about like being introduced to the way you think about things is, you know, we first really started hanging out at your place uh, and we'd have these potlucks, you know, that you would cook this amazing food and there'd just be a bunch of people and there'd be no agenda. It's just like people who are all political of some sort. And inevitably when you get a group of people who think about politics all day or like read these types of books, inevitably politics happens, but it happens also intermixed with jokes and uh, talking about music and dancing and things like that. Um, and really building this community and having gone to Greece and um, never having gone to Italy, but I can only imagine, but in Greece, I feel like there was more of this 
uh, we are building a new way of being with each other. Um, and that definitely exists like in, in um, the Zapatistas in Rojava and, and the other places I've, I've gone to see. Um, and you also, I feel like, are really good at uh, connecting with elders in our community, thinking about things in a different time span than just the, the, the here and now. And, you know, so I, can you talk about why you feel those are so vital for our struggle today? Why do you, why, why do you prioritize them in your life? Um, and, and also, what are some of the obstacles that we face here in, in creating this new form of life together? Yeah, I think there's a rush. I think we want instant gratification. We want to squat now. We want to win this march now. We want to occupy this space now. But I think the point of creating community and caring for elders or doing childcare, uh, I think the point of that is is to really see that our struggle is generations long. And and at times it is exhausting. At times sort of transitioning from capitalist life into more autonomous form of life uh, can be very difficult. And and we talk a lot about that. And I think part of the reason why we did the dinners and part of the reason why we have, let's say, the Health Autonomy Working Group and, and just other forms, other networks, is because I think a lot of us are just trying to get out. I think it's it's very nice to think that I, you know, don't hate Mondays, hate capitalism. So I, I want to liberate my Mondays. And then after we're able to sustain our own food supply and able to form our own uh, forms of care, then we'll feel less anxiety when we, when we actually get, when we work part-time instead of full-time. And I think part of the exhaustion that we face is, is in that transition is that, you know, should I, should I really be involved in this housing project collectively with, with this other group? Should I get involved in this, in collective farming? And, and I think that by, by creating the dinners, by, by just socializing and hanging out, we create that informal trust. Uh, there's, there's a lot of prerequisites when, when people get involved in more serious forms of politics that I think sometimes we ignore. We think that just a meeting and an agenda and a quote unquote common theoretical, you know, framework will keep us together and we can deal with the hard times, but actually we can't. And, and so people, people don't socialize with each other. And, and I think we've inherited that from capitalist life. We're afraid of saying that we're lonely. We're afraid of saying that, uh, that, you know, we have this shitty Monday through Friday, nine to five schedule. And then, uh, on the weekends we can do capitalist life, uh, non-capitalist life. And, and I think it's very, very dangerous when we start multitasking like that, because then we end up not doing anything radical. When, when you can pull off and say, well, I have a great job. I have a great position at this university or at this hospital. Uh, and I do this radical project and I do that. It, then you become like anyone else. Right. And, but there should be a horizon. And I think the dinners and that emotional connection to one another, that's the horizon. We want more of that. We want more time to party. We want more time to socialize. If you have kids, to spend time with your kids. If you have elders, to spend time with your elders. Not hand them over to nursing homes. Not hand them over to nannies. Who are also exploited in the process of doing that work, as Sylvia highlights. So I think that what, what we've realized is that every that all of us have a desire. And, and it's a desire to love. We have desires to care. We have desires to eat together. And for every desire, as Guattari says, you know, we have blocks, we have, we have processes that are able to commodify it and take control of that. 
And, and that's very dangerous. And I think that we're in the process through spaces like, let's say, Woodbine or Beaver and so many other spaces that we're slowly kind of taking away those chains and those processes that have commodified and coded those desires. And, and I think that that's the point of doing dinners or, or other social activities. And it should be done in a natural, normal way. It shouldn't be done as a, as a, as a project or intentional. Because if it is, then it just becomes so lame and boring that no one will come the second time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I think, the point of community is that uh, in many ways, there is no point. There are no bullet points to say, well, we did X, <laughs> Y, and Z in this, you know, but we just developed something beyond, uh, you know, what is productive. And, and I think that that's really important. Yeah. And I think it's so important, you know, this idea of like, we're, we're recreating relationships that, you know, we're not just friends, right? There's like, we're comrades and that, that's a whole, whole different level. Like we're trying to tie our lives together. You know, it's like the in-between between a significant partner and, uh, and a friend of like how, how you, you are as important as my girlfriend or something like that, you know, right. which of course they don't ever want to hear. Right. <laughs> um, but also, you know, that that's, that's the way I think, um, that is important. There's a, this quote that I love. It's, uh, uh, let's be careful with each other so we can be dangerous together. Right. You know, this idea oh, that, that we have to take care of each other. Um, but then on the counter side, I think the really fascinating thing is that, you know, I, I, I think some people will hear that and be like, oh, cool. Like that's, didn't the hippies do that? Right. Like, yeah, like just free yourself, like free love and like free everything. Um, but I think what, what is also different is that there is this, this very precise intentionality around it, that there is this like very specific level of care. And I think, you know, if I were to critique our own kind of movements, especially like, uh, you know, no offense to anarchists, but like anarchist stereotypes of, um, uh, there's, uh, not, not a, an, as much emphasis on, um, the context of that care. And so something I was thinking about in our space is that, um, we struggle with doing the dishes. And while I don't think doing dishes will solve the revolution, nobody's going to come into our space and think, take us seriously if there's dirty dishes in the sink. Exactly. It's just like there are basic levels of things. And, and I think even the way you talk about like words, like the words care and social, and they mean very specific things. Um, and also your, the theory that you have behind your, your practice um, I think is really cool. And, and, you know, just maybe if you could talk about that aspect of it, like that, that very intentional and that very specific and, and, um, thoughtful way of developing these politics. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, the role, the role of theory I think is, is undervalued and it wasn't until, you know, going to South America and Italy and Greece that it, it, it became apparent again how, how important theory is. And at least for myself, you know, Marx and, and volume, I've only read volume one. I'm not <laughs> claiming to be an expert. But, um, you know, I, I, I read Marx not in the form of uh, understanding how to build movement, but I, instead understanding how every aspect of care and life and desire is commodified. And I think parallel to Marx, Foucault, and how power ensures that productivity and, and hyper-commodifying uh, many, of, many of the everyday aspects of our labor. So I think those two authors, for me, were really important. Of course, Spivak 
in Fanon around the subaltern as someone who does come from a colonized background. And also in many ways, there's, there's a lot of parallels to how disease becomes a process of, uh, of control and discipline. So uh, those writers were important, of course, um, and, and Guattari and the anti-psychiatry movement and how the institution of medicine has, has developed so many forms of co-opting uh, what could be forms of care and mutual aid. And I think that his analysis is really important. Butler around vulnerability and precarity. And we talked about Sylvia Federici. Uh, but the two, I think, core concepts around care reproduction and commoning are really important. Besides these writers, I think just exchanges that we've had and, and, and exchanges that we've had with other spaces, uh, I think... Um, for me, again, the, be, having visited Greece, Italy, and, and Argentina, I've I've gained a lot. I've I've really learned so much from their analysis, and and so I think that theory we can't whether we're artists or care workers or farmers. Um, there's no radical practice without a theoretical analysis, and it's not theory in the form of. Uh, sort of scripting how we're going to be, but I think we what are we do, what are we exactly confronting? What are we exactly deconstructing? And based on that deconstruction, uh, what are we placing in in you know what are we putting in place of that? And and that's where it becomes very frustrating. Let's say as someone who who's dealing with both traditional medicine and trying to get into radical care work, where you know we'll go to a radical care project and we'll see. Uh, you know, there was one example, and I don't want to give the name or anything, but, you know, one example where the group was just trying to almost mimic EMTs. And, and, and the point is, is like, we're not here to replace the biomedical model. The biomedical model, the electoral model, and, and capital are all entwined. And, and that's something that we learned from Greece, that, you know, the biomedical model wasn't able to, to recuperate uh, Greeks from the shock of, of the neoliberal, neoliberal crisis. The electoral model definitely didn't do that. If anything, it, it sort of facilitated the, the neoliberal project in Greece. Um, so, so no, I mean, copying the biomedical model, copying how EMTs or emergency room doctors or, or you know, my, in my form, an addiction doctor operates, we shouldn't be copying that. I mean, there, there's a broader horizon where if we are anti-capitalists, you can't be reproducing the biomedical model and still have an anti-capitalist agenda you know so um so that's where i think theory is really important and and i'm being vague but i think in in the upcoming interviews we're we're actually going to talk to groups that i think will highlight how uh, a very what what people might perceive as being a very local small project is actually incredibly theoretically uh developed and and able to open a lot of tangents for for audiences listening to that great and I know one of the projects in, in kind of this idea of like pushing theory and, and pushing, um, you know, how theory informs practical applications is uh, a journal, you're, a collective journal you're, you're involved in, Care, Nort, Care Notes. Yeah. Um, and if you could uh, maybe just tell us some motivations behind it, you know, what you've learned from, from what people have talked about um, and where it's going, you know, what are next steps for it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially after, after the trip, after Black Lives Matter, what 
what was happening in in Baltimore and Ferguson were a lot of incredible forms of depolicing and care work was was a platform to allow communities to depolice themselves. So instead of calling the EMTs uh, or instead of calling 911, uh, where people actually did need EMTs but would be accompanied with police officers, uh, communities were doing trainings around uh, how to do basic first aid, how to deal with acute psychoses, how to deal with an acute hemorrhage. And I think that the more we adopt uh, these models of, of acute care, the more we can develop the networks that can then allow us to jump off that biomedical model or the acute response model towards prevention. So, um, but anyway, that, that's a separate, that's a separate tangent. But the point is, is that care notes, I think brings back a lot of the work that Florence Johnson was doing. I think it, it incorporates a lot of the analyses from Sylvia Federici and some of the other writers that we talked about in looking at how care work can offer an alternative to capitalist life and how our bodies are sort of hyper-capitalized even in its sixth state within a hospital or a clinic. I think that's something that we have to fight against. And, and there's beautiful models where groups from all around the world are developing, um, where they're able to provide care around food, uh, basic healthcare, uh, housing that, that are providing a way out of, of capitalist life. Uh, capitalism is, is able to reproduce itself through crises and it, nothing is more tragic than having, uh, someone who who's suffering the worst forms of social violence, uh, police brutality or incarceration or depression from, you know, various structural factors. And, and the fact that society is able to even profit off that capital is able to profit off of that. Um, but no, how do we, how do we see, for instance, a situation like hurricane Sandy, uh, or, uh, homelessness or police brutality in that form of pathology as a way out. So we get in, we collectivize, we socialize, we deal with the acute issues, but then that network is able to see and, and address sort of the chronic, uh, health issues. And then it's able to prevent those. And then from prevention, it's able to deal with capital itself. So there's these phases that I think, uh, care notes is trying to highlight where, uh, it's able to move from the acute, the biological to the chronic, to the preventive, and then to the political act, or maybe it's all political. Maybe the fact that there is a group that's now empowered to deal with hemorrhage, um, a gunshot wound or a stabbing is itself a political act. Um, and, and for instance, in Greece, I think Greece gave a lot of structure to, I think how care notes or, or maybe how we see care work, for instance, you know, the, the, the stages that they see from the modern Western biomedical clinic to the social clinics that the anarchists are now, and, and a lot of the autonomous groups are now running that actually provides care for 10% of Greeks population and for thousands of refugees in Greece to then that phase of work around social spaces for health. And, and I think beyond that deterritorializing care. Um, and, and so I think that's where, uh, my, I think my interest is and in how we're shifting away and, 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 and how that shift is, is completely, 
it, it, it's, it's in parallel to an anti-capitalist project. I mean, it, it, you, can't, you can't avoid that. So, for instance, the fact that, and, and I'm only saying this as an example because we've been discussing it, but the fact that Woodbine deals with food, healthcare, housing, that you have to. You can't only work in the singular because you get frustrated and there's limits to that. But the fact that, let's say, we can grow our own herbs from our own farm, um, there's these new new forms that exist that allow us to to transition out of capitalist life that I think are essential. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's beautiful. Um, well, as we close up, uh, you know, thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, we'll, we'll obviously be, uh, be diving in, investigating this, uh, these topics that have been brought up, uh, in multiple, uh, different ways and, and different experiences, but just in closing, you know, what other projects links would you, would you point us to and, uh, what kind of closing thoughts do you have? I think just, I mean, being selfish, this podcast, uh, the Care Notes magazine, it's going to be published through Common Notions. So if people can Google search for Common Notions, uh, we're going to have a page up and running pretty soon. We have three editions coming up. Um, besides that, I, it, I can't really point people to specific projects. I think that it's really dependent on where, where we live and what health issues are, are confronting our, our communities and our neighborhoods there's so many ways to get involved and i think care work is is one of those platforms where you don't need that institutional approval you can get involved based on mutual need how many people do we know who think they're privileged but are dealing with depression dealing with loneliness dealing with substance use problems dealing with the challenges of child care elder care so i think there's there's so many points where we can find each other and start providing mutual aid and care and we hope that people can share their experiences by contacting us. What was our email again? Woodbinehealth at gmail.com. That's it. So. And, uh, and uh, you know, on the mask.fm website, you'll there'll be all our contact information as well as the upcoming episodes. Well, great. We're going to wrap up. And thank you so much for, for speaking to us. Uh, emails with any questions, comments, critiques, feedback. Uh, and as we close, uh, we want to end with a little bit of culture. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a quote that I like, it's not the notes that make the music. So we want to add our, our little piece towards creating this idea of a culture of resistance that, you know, the way of being in the world that influences everything you do is, is kind of the context in which we do our actions, in which we read our theory, in which we have our care. Uh, and so music is always an important aspect of that. So we'd like to highlight a new track from a tribe called Red. Uh, they're from Canada, bursting from Canada's capital, as their website says, a native producer and DJ crew, a tribe called Red is making an impact on the global electronic scene with a truly unique sound. Chop Called Red is made up of three members, two old men, a DJ Nan, and a Bear Witness. I'm totally probably screwing that up, uh, and I'm sorry to them because they're awesome. Um, but uh, this song is called Red. Bismillah. Hey! Showing living by the Zico. What the fuck is fleek though? Don't ask them, what do he know? What I forgot is better than whatever they remember. Never mind, I'm off it, it's quiet for them. Time to put the temper tantrums to the quiet corner. Hush! 
That's enough, said the ruler. No suckers allowed to break bread or asunder. The daylight, lightning, and the thunder. Sun, moon, and stars, and the hunger. Abundance in bundles. Blessings in troubles. Towers and tunnels. Views and valleys. Waves and peaks. Streets you from sun. Planet Earth. And ain't scared of no Mars attack. What type of bars is that? Stay off my chat. I'm up, they call it riot garments. Top five, dying on it. On them super fly slicker top rope, equal diving on them. You why you lying, homie? You won't play with my emotions, Smokey. Big chief heart rate, big beat, B E Y I C straight jacket, come clean. Big said it was a dream. Now it's a living thing. With you and living kings, I mean it, I mean. And as we close out, I just want to leave you with a quote from our group comrades. We have nowhere to return to, and this is a conscious choice. Take care. We'll see you next time. Thank you.